I'm Lisa Anita Wagner. And I am Lisa McEwen. And together we are She's Gotta Have It. She's gotta have it. Exclamation point. <laughs> Which will it be? Exclamation mark. Did you say mark or point? I think I said point, but I didn't think about it in advance at all. We can decide we'll later. later. Yeah, we'll all figure right. it out. This episode, we will be talking about I Love Dick episode one. The pilot. The pilot, directed by Jill Soloway. Yes. And the series as as a whole is based on a novel by Chris Krause, right? Which I haven't read yet, and I'm very keen to read. Yeah. And episode one is directed by by Jill Soloway. And so what we're going to start off with is just a quick plot recap. If you've seen it and it's been a while, or if you haven't seen it but you want to listen to this podcast episode anyway, because maybe it will make you want to see it, then here we go. So this is coming from Wikipedia. So Chris, played by Catherine Hahn, is an unsuccessful New York City-based artist and filmmaker who accompanies her husband, Silver, played by Griffin Dunn to Marfa, Texas, where Silver is taking up a research fellowship. Upon arrival in Marfa, Chris quickly becomes infatuated with Silver's fellowship sponsor, Dick, played by Kevin Bacon. Her infatuation with Dick becomes articulated in undelivered letters to him, which are filled with unbounded, sexually explicit desires. Her contentious and frustrating interactions with Dick, as well as the writing of her confessional letters to him, begin to affect her attitudes towards her marriage, work, and confidence as an artist and person. I feel like that's a reasonable recap. Yeah. Of the whole series. Or is that just of... That's just of... Oh, the yeah. first one. Yeah, I mean, it's it's sort of... I, it's sort of of the series, but a little bit of... Uh, the first episode, I think, is a kind of microcosm yeah. of what happens in the whole thing. They they arrive in Marfa, Texas. We, we, we first see them in their New York apartment. They arrive in Marfa, Texas after having driven there. As she attends the first party that's sort of, yeah social event of the institute and uh where she meets dick and then they take dick for dinner is very specifically what happens in this episode um and then it's after that dinner that she starts writing him these letters all right so let's just dive in all right listeners so we've decided to start with uh, a personal segment in which both lisa and i talk about what we want um, Lisa, what do you want today? I've been thinking a lot about sort of, yeah, my my life's work as a storyteller. And I already do have a lot of great collaborations, including this one with Lisa. I feel like I'd like to bring more help and more collaborators into my creative life. And I genuinely want to eat as many hamburgers as feels good to my body. <laughs> <laughs> And we are still experimenting with how many hamburgers that is. Yes. But yeah, I'm with you on that. So, yeah, that's me. And what what do you want right now? What do I want? I want chocolate, which is a good thing because I have some hmm. right here in front of me. And a kind of more general want I have at the moment is I want to finish wrapping up the uh, the three dissertation chapters I'm currently getting ready for my my dissertation meeting that I have in New York next week and it's going well so I'm actually very excited about it and I think that not everyone gets this level of excitement at this stage of their dissertation listeners I won't 
tell you exactly how many years I've been writing this dissertation, but it has been too many years is how many years I've been writing it. And I'm very excited for it to end, but I'm still really excited about the ideas. So it's actually an enjoyable process. That's very exciting. Yeah. All right. So let's dive into this episode. All right. Initial impressions. So we just rewatched it. Yeah. I suppose from, I have, as you know, watched this series many times (laughs) and I did watch it even more sort of specifically today, thinking we were going to be talking about it. Mm. I think what really struck me is how much intimacy is shown. Now that intimate moments, like I really, yeah, noticed even in the the fantasy sequences over the dinner and there's so many moments of intimacy. So that really just struck me from this particular watching. Yeah, that's... That's interesting. So when I rewatched it just now with you, that dinner scene was way shorter this time. It felt so long the first time I watched it. And that's maybe because I needed to keep stopping it so that I could just process all of the angst and like embarrassment I was feeling on her behalf. Just all of that felt much longer than, than the actual scene was, so I was a little surprised by that. That's definitely something that's done so expertly in this, mm-hmm. is that it feels so much during this high level of discomfort. Yeah, and then I, I also just, once again, I find Kevin Bacon's casting is so excellent because there is just something that's just so funny about him as that cowboy guy. It just, it, it just like He just goes by on his horse. It's so funny. I don't even know why. So that's a great sort of starting point, I feel like. There is, I think, just to kind of jump off that horse Kevin Bacon point, I was also struck by that because... Like, we start with them in the city when they're, like, in their mess of an apartment and they're, they're scrum- like, rummaging through and they're, they're trying to get out and they arrive in this rural town and it's, it is just this, like, hilarious kind of, kind of cliche of what a southern man might be like. <laughs> yeah. I would imagine. Like, as a Canadian, I feel like we have slightly different perspectives than other Americans might have about what the South is like. But it was just this sort of, like, idealized masculinity. Mm-hmm. That's what it felt like to me. That was also just, again, quite remarkable. Mm-hmm. Um, and I feel like that's so expertly done in the show in general, but and by Jill Soloway, who directed this episode. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, yeah, the, that intimacy. I really feel like I like how uh, Chris and Silver. They really, you see them as a, they really feel like a couple to me. Like they Mm -hmm. absolutely, and you can see why they're together. And then, yeah, it was interesting even watching them pack at the beginning and all of it, I realized was it's full of intimate moments. And often those moments are sort of glossed over and stuff. So to kind of take your time and slowly be with them in the intimate moments. Yeah. It just held a lot of water in terms of why I continually find it interesting. That's why I watch it so many times. So let's let's jump into talking about intimacy, which is uh, going to be one of our sections. We appreciate your patience, listeners, as we work out the structure of this podcast by doing it. By doing it. I feel like we are both people who figure things out as we do them. So do you want to talk about a, a moment or two that struck you? Um, actually, I noticed this for the first time today, that when Chris was first talking to um dick Mm. um 
everything slowed down in this way. And mm. I was curious. It wasn't actually filmic. Like the, the time didn't slow down, but it actually got really quiet. And all the background noise of the party dimmed right down. And I thought that was a really excellent kind of like filmic way to show that and then showing her yeah I guess it's even it's interesting it's even just the, the closeness of with which it's shown mm -hmm. yeah I feel like it does a, it did a really remarkable job so that one I noticed the audio came down this time because even though I do I am a filmmaker and I think that way it's still am amazing to that I can get sucked in so much that I don't notice that the first time I just got sucked into feeling like I was in there with them I also noticed that this time and I hadn't the last time and um, the other thing that struck me, well, first of all, so the ambient noise comes way down. The noise of his rolling the cigarette comes way up, which was interesting to me because that's not just an, a moment of intimacy. And these these different concepts are going to get kind of intertwined in confusing ways. But it's also this moment where it's like there's desire. You know, she's like she's really seeing him. She sort of glimpsed him. But now she's sort of like really like laying her eyes on him and he's rolling the cigarette and the way that the camera is focusing in on Kevin Bacon, rolling it and then licking the, I'm not a smoker, whatever, the piece of paper and then to get it to stick, kind of like, like the camera was suddenly desiring Kevin Bacon and it, everything kind of slowed down. And then it came up a little bit when they were talking, but I don't know if you noticed the moment when the ambient noise came right back up again is when she said, I'm here with my husband. And suddenly it was like we were we were back in like we were shaken out of that moment of that moment too, just the cigarette moment right after that, he actually looks right at her. That was another thing that struck me as very intimate. So yeah, that moment, even when they were still far, mm -hmm. he just had a real penetrating look and saw her. And that might've even been when the audio went down. I can't remember that detail, mm -hmm. but, mm -hmm. but yeah, that was very expertly crafted to feel like you were, I felt literally like I was sucked into a vacuum mm -hmm. with them. And then you're in that space when you're really into someone and everything else quiets down and all you hear is like they're <laughs> yeah. them rolling their papers. It's, yeah, it's very uh, intimate and feelings driven. Um, yeah. Yeah. And yeah, there's something and, you know, I'm not a, a film scholar person, but there's something sort of like that felt a little bit like... Um, cloud-like in a buoyant way it's hard to explain but like I noticed that when the noise came back up it was sort of very grating and jarring and suddenly like it's as though this sort of like um there had been a buffer that yeah. kind of protected this intimate space kind of literally and emotionally so yeah that's interesting that we both noticed that and then another time was actually the sex scene with Chris and Silver, the her and her husband, when she first uh, read the letters, and it's interesting they didn't show any. They were dr both dressed on top. You they, you couldn't see anything, but it was their faces close, and just it was so intimate. Yeah, that um, yeah, it sort of felt like you're like, oh, sorry guys, I'm here in the middle of your um, yeah. your sex. It has that feeling, and I think yeah, I just noticed that too. How intimate it, the whole thing feels. Yeah, I think we were talking about this um, last time when I was here, that it feels a little bit like you're intruding on somebody's actual sex they're having with yeah. their partner. Like, that's how the camera makes you feel as a viewer, that you're kind of like, not at all that you're unwelcome, but just that it's the, a very 
it's an intense way of viewing sex that we're not, not used, used to. to. That's what I was going to say. I feel like sex scenes are so weird normally and people are posed in this way so nothing is showing. It's so inauthentic and phony looking, but that's what yeah. we're used to seeing. So when we see real emotion, well, it's obviously uh, fictitious because it's acting, but like yeah. very authentic moments like that and closeness and even just the camera in close. Like I noticed in that whole series, it's there's often unusual and close framings of folks and folks' yeah. hands. And yeah, it really has a feeling of memory of like being a kid and how you remember little pieces. Yeah. And like, just if I'm thinking now about... Um the kinds of the ways we're used to seeing sex there's there's two sort of broad places one is in pornography and then one is in like rom-coms yeah. right and those are two very different depictions because rom-coms as you say it's very stagey again it's not showing anything um it's not like showing people's genitals the way that you would see in pornography but it's certainly not showing something that feels intimate in the same way and i i really I'm interested in sex, but I find sex scenes in most films kind of boring because yeah. it feels like you're like, well, and why am I looking at this right now? <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, yeah, I find them cringeworthy or boring. Yeah, yeah. There's more cringeworthy stuff recently, like all the Lena Dunham stuff, where it's like really cringeworthy sex scenes. But that's yeah. really, yeah, I much prefer that. I remember a friend of ours saying to me that he found the Lena Dunham sex scenes grotesque, and I remember having a conversation with him after that about how like. It's because it's showing sex kind of sometimes how how it is, especially when you are in your early 20s and you're sleeping with people that you don't necessarily feel super connected with. Like it's real and it's not really intimate. Like and so there is a kind of ugliness to that that I actually I mean, I haven't watched all the seasons of Girls, but I remember after watching the first season of Girls thinking like that is realistic in a way that is uncomfortable to watch on a number of levels. But the other thing with pornography, which is a little bit in the wheelhouse of my dissertation, actually. My my dissertation isn't strictly on pornography, but uh, my, my dissertation deals with some feminist critiques of pornography. But as a result, listeners, I have spent a lot of time thinking about pornography and reading about pornography. The, the viewer is very much, it's like the whole thing is just there for the viewer, right? Like it's not about the two people having a real moment. Yeah. And so it's staged in a different way. And it's staged in a way that like is often um, really kind of reminiscent of what um, John Berger talks about with the nude. Um, John Berger is an art historian who wrote a book called Ways of Seeing. In one of the chapters, he talks about something that's very similar to what uh, Laura Mulvey talks about as the male gaze, right? So Laura Mulvey coined that term, but, but other people have been talking about this. And what John Berger notices about the way women are depicted in art history is that the especially in the category of the nude is that he wants to make a, a hard distinction between what it what it is to see somebody naked and what it means to see somebody as a nude. And for him, the nude is about depicting a woman as submissive to the artist, but more specifically, the person funding the painting, the, the owner of the painting. So usually it was somebody who, potentially from real life, or it could be somebody who wasn't even a real woman, but the idea is that she's nude and she's in a submissive position and she's gazing at the viewer in a way that says, like, I belong to you, Yeah, in a way, right? And so it was um, a very specific construction 
of a kind of like hierarchy, right? And so, and what John Berger is saying is, you know, the whole history of nudes in art history doesn't show women as they are. It shows women as men want them to be. It shows them as a particular kind of construction. And I feel like that's how we're used to seeing sex. And the point I'm trying to make is that it is absolutely not what's going on in, in this episode. And I find that super interesting. And I think that's true for the whole series, because we talked about this relating to a few sex scenes. Mm-hmm. Um, that it is like real and intimate, and it is very much about their faces, and it's not there for the viewer, even though the viewer isn't unwelcome. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. And I think that's not something we're used to seeing. No. It is. It's hard to process. It is. It is. And, yeah, I'd never thought about it that specifically before, but but it definitely... I did notice that it felt so intimate, yet there was often no nudity. And that, that totally surprised me how... Yeah. Yeah, how intimate it could feel when you're just really close... And it was acted and filmed really awesomely. Yeah. And like just the way they both have their shirts on. Yeah. <laughs> like it was just so like, yeah, that's that's like real because they're not doing it for anyone except themselves. Right. Like it's not as though it's a scene you're watching that is self-conscious that it's a scene. Yeah. Yeah. So that go- kind of goes Ooh. back to my main thing of authenticity. That's what, mm. that's why it's so mm-hmm. good mm-hmm. because of the intimacy and the authenticity. Yeah. And yeah. And I think I'll just say again, I feel like that's why I watch Jill Soloway's stuff like so over and over and over and why mm-hmm. I can become obsessed with it is because it really is like all levels of it are built from authenticity. I feel like we need um, a section about the male gaze. there's a couple things in here. That... Well, yeah, those awesome conversations that include some lines like, well, no good films have ever been made by a woman because she has to work from behind her oppression. Yeah. So, all right. So let's, okay, here, here we go. Listeners. All right. We're going to go into our next segment. We're going to just, for right now, uh, as a bookmark, call the male gaze section. I feel like we need to come up with snappier titles. And if listeners have any suggestions for us, we are all ears. Okay, so, um, yeah, let's talk about the, the male gaze. So first, actually, before we get to the dinner part, because one thing that struck me is her anxiety as she's figuring out what to wear for the dinner, and then as she, the way she sort of comes in, she like she figures, she's wondering if the dress is going to be like two men a night. She puts it on, she looks great, and her husband gives her a cursory glance, and then's like, let's go, and she is upset at that point. And I yeah. thought that was a kind of interesting moment, given what the series is about. Yeah, and actually, I just noticed that that moment, too, of him, even he was like, okay, come on, like, chop, chop, and he's like, I'm turning the lights off, and it's just that <laughs> thing of, like, come on, go, we gotta go. Yeah, I mean, I guess it, because it's funny, because you say that they're like a real couple, and that is absolutely true. Um, so, like, another intimate moment that I really loved was when we had a glimpse of them sleeping, and they're spooning, and, like, it just, it it just looked very... I don't know. There was something about that, that it was, um, that there was a kind of real intimacy there, but it's also very much like she doesn't feel seen by her husband at the same time. Yes. And I don't really know exactly what that means to her. It's a moment, I guess, of like her still holding on to it in the way that like a lot of us do when we're presenting ourselves, we're presenting ourselves like for the view of a, like a man. And she has sort of gussied herself up because actually 
in a lot of the rest of the scene, she's not wearing any makeup, but she is wearing makeup in that dinner scene. Yeah, he gives her this cursory glance that's just so kind of like, I think, devastating for her in that moment a little bit because she doesn't actually want to have sex with him because then he's like, all right, like, let's just fuck. And she's sort of like, well, you don't need to get weird about it because because that's actually just also not what she wanted in that moment, right? Like what she wanted was something kind of, she wanted to feel, I think, seen or desired or something like that. Yeah, scene, I think, is a good, mm-hmm. makes a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. Which is interesting in light of the John Berger stuff. Would you like some more chocolate? Sure, thank you. Because his whole point is that when women present themselves for men, they're not seen. Yeah, I would agree. But I think that we forget that. And that might be a kind of moment where we're reminded at the beginning of this series that she still like begins with that belief, maybe. But I feel comes undone. Yes. And I think that same subject later on down the road where they have the white painting covering, we'll talk about it in another episode. <laughs> that is, I realized that's, a, I was, I was a bit confused about it a little bit, but I realize now I think it's based in that, that mm. when you are presenting for someone, mm. you're not really being seen for you. It's mm-hmm. this other presentation. So anyway, that, yeah. that was very confusing. I've just clarified for myself something <laughs> for later on in the series that stay tuned viewers, stay tuned You'll viewers to... <laughs> for less confusion. Amazing. Yes. And then just uh, the, what we sort of touched upon that conversation uh, between Silver and Dick that they were discussing Chris's oh talent, discussing everything about her. And the, the shot, like the actual like cinematic shot, of like them leaning over into each other is this moment of intimacy intimacy between these two men that is also disgusting because they're evaluating the worth of the woman who's sitting across from them. But what's interesting is that the viewer is in the position of her in that moment. Yeah. And so I think that really kind of causes us to, it's, it's inviting us to see how grotesque. What it feels like. Yeah. 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 That's what's so great, I think, about filmmaking is because you get to bring the person into the room with you. Like, they're kind of, like, here with you. So you're Mm -hmm. like, this is what it feels like when you have this kind of intimate work. Um, Yeah, and then I found that that whole scene was so... I'm going to say the word delicious. Because it's like... (laughs) Because you know it's... Like, it was was just sort of doing it and stating it. But you know it's not stating it deliberately. But it was just so so artfully put together. Mm -hmm. And it was hard to watch. And Mm -hmm. then also funny... Yeah. And then also, like, really cringeworthy. But mm-hmm. I really think it's an incredible scene. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And 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 the the other moment where he turns to her and he says something like, well, you're obviously, like, not a filmmaker. So he says something along these lines, because if you, like, you, if you wanted it, you would be. And it, again, is another kind of, like, looking down the barrel of the camera shot, which I thought was really interesting. Um but then also just this kind of like, boom, here's his evaluation of you based on nothing, based on having seen nothing of this woman's work, right? Which, oh. And then I'm just in terms of her work, I'm fascinated by the detail that she just truly didn't pay the musicians and got a cease and desist. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah. it's of interest, I guess. I'm interested in the story arc that, you can make mistakes. You can make blatant mistakes and it, and it's sort of still okay. Cause I was confused by that story point at first. Cause I, as a filmmaker, I'm like annoyed with her. I was like, why didn't you just pay the musicians? Mm-hmm. 
but I guess as a, as a story that I haven't seen before, it's kind of refreshing even like, I mean, it's as, as a personality trait, it was almost like she didn't own up that she just fucked up essentially. But I guess it's just refreshing to have someone be like, it's a, it doesn't matter. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And just kind of keep going Mm -hmm. and kind of own it. So that was interesting for me because again, I was just as me, the filmmaker, I was like, how could you do that to the musicians? (laughs) And, but yeah, I guess it is just, you don't often see someone in like the heroine's journey or like in the main position that really does just mess up and really does just mm-hmm. not send the stuff in. So I, yeah, I just thought it was refreshing and different. Yeah. I, yeah, I'm still, I'm still not sure what I think about that because I think I have a very similar reaction to the filmmaker one, but also that it's like, it's, it's sort of, it's like, it's also our first window into what a mess this woman is. Right. Like yeah. I think that she, and I think that this is what I like that, you yeah. see someone that does make mistakes, does make a mess and it's okay. There's not like these things you have to hit that are like winning things or like get the right things or do it properly and you can still have your voice and move ahead. So I guess mm-hmm. that's what I like about it, but it did take me a while to come at that. Cause at first I was really confused by the character of Chris Krause and how it was a feminist character until I mm. sort of got a handle on the whole thing. Mm-hmm. Cause yeah, at first I was like, I found her, unappealing but I didn't yeah I just I had I had to rethink it and now I really really love Chris Krause I've come like full circle yeah and one of the other things I loved about that dinner scene is uh I think it was around the time that he said something like he also says something like women are just not very good filmmakers because they need to make films from behind their oppression and they're just kind of a bummer and then she comes back, like, with this very reactionary, like, defensive list of, of women filmmakers. And, you know, like, I can't even remember what the ones she's naming. Jane Campion. Yeah. And then there's a there's a kind of montage of very, very fast scenes <coughs> from women filmmakers. Um, a lot of which I didn't recognize. But the two that stuck with me were the one where the woman's, like, laying on the bed with something over her mouth. That's it's unclear to me what that was or what the context for that was, if that was sinister or not. But then also the shot from Orlando where you see Tilda Swinton's head, like Tilda Swinton as Orlando looks from um, the kind of like side shot Sears catalog point of view of a portrait to right at the, the viewer. Camera. Yeah, and right at the camera. That's right. And what I loved about that was that it was though as Tilda Swinton was going, excuse me? me? <laughs> it looked like that. I really love the detail that in this series, they infuse it with real little pieces of art in other people's mm. work. I've never seen that before. I love that. I think it's this interesting thing of sort of adding like documentary into it and I'm really curious to read the book now because I'm so curious what the book presented and how they how it got yeah. brought to this place yeah. but yeah I love that because it also feels like you're with the, the, the showing was the, the list of filmmakers and then I think clips of those same filmmakers really fast mm-hmm. and it also had that same feeling of Chris Krause's manicness and trying to bring you into the table and be like no what about all these ones and then quick 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 and mm-hmm. then Tilda Swinton's like excuse me <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, it's, it's really different and I, I love it. We're almost done. Yeah, I feel like that's all the main points there. The last category that we potentially have here is just bodies slash wardrobe slash makeup. And I think I've said a couple of the points I wanted to make already. One of which is just that mostly she's not wearing makeup, which I really love. 
as somebody who does not wear makeup myself. Um, Not as a feminist choice, more as a laziness choice. Um, And mine is an authenticity choice to not wear makeup. I feel like I have really sensitive vision. So the way that some people, and no disrespect intended, but how people put on full makeup, it looks to me like pancake, like almost like, Mm. like a mask. So I have just a different relationship with that. Um, but anyway, with no makeupness, yeah. but I'm very interested in it because yeah, and like for me, I was recounting this to somebody the other day. I forget who, but I went to an all girls high school. We were literally not allowed to wear makeup, and so I just never really. I mean, I experimented with it a little bit as a teenager, but then I kind of hit a point around undergrad where I just kind of was used to not wearing it, and like every time I try, I just do it badly. I'm just not good at it. And I mean, I would be if I was the sort of person who felt it was important to do every day. But but I literally was like I I came of age feeling like I wasn't allowed to wear makeup. And so when I do wear makeup, I feel like a six year old who's dressing up in her mom's clothes, trying to put makeup on like it. It feels inauthentic, but for reasons that I can't quite like articulate in a way that makes sense, because here's the other thing is that. A few years ago, I also stopped announcing to women that I don't wear makeup because it's kind of a political thing within femininity because there's also a very real feeling that a lot of women have that unless they're wearing makeup, they're not welcome in certain spaces. And I believe that, but I find it, I find it appalling that women are made to feel that way because I've, it's never something I felt and like for whatever reason... Like, maybe I just haven't noticed that other people are, <laughs> are judging me for it. But, um, but uh, yeah, it's something that I'm really starting to appreciate that other women do feel. And that um, that is actually, like, mind-boggling to me. That there would be anyone who would make you feel that way. I mean, the, the way that women are made to feel in spaces is of, often no longer because, like, one specific person is saying something explicit to them. It's a kind of generalized feeling you get as you grow up. Um, and mine just happened to be negated by the fact that I wasn't allowed to wear makeup or else I got in trouble. <laughs> sort of neutralized that force. But yeah, anyway, it's just... It's just interesting. It's, just Yeah. I just, again, my, my experience, because really briefly, I was a model deep in the 90s when that makeup <laughs> that I was talking about mm-hmm. was actually required. Like, I would actually be mocked if I'd show up with less makeup or like my overalls, I I often they're like, "Oh, are you the gardener?" Like people would be trying to like insult me, and I always kind of th- took it as a huge compliment. But um, but yeah, no, for That's me, it, and then you. it became like work. Like I was like, "Oh, I got to put all this yeah. stuff on my face." But it's interesting, even like I can look at my work. I did it when I was about nineteen, and I'm now forty six. I look older in my photos than I do oh. now. I just felt like it really made me look a lot older. Yeah. And almost clown-like for my personal aesthetic. But um, I do feel, and I realize there's all different folks, but I feel like I'd like to see someone's skin. If you've got darkness Mm -hmm. under your eyes, I feel like a face is something you want to tell the truth with. Mm -hmm. Not that you don't want to groom it or Mm -hmm. enhance to some extent, but I kind of like a truth-telling face. So yeah. So anyway, this is a loop just of our personal experience with makeup. Back to I Love Dick. I actually love that Chris Krause a lot of the time does look like a real person with like her frizzy hair parted in the middle. Her frizzy hair. And it's so, yeah, it's, I, I also really did enjoy her like overalls and fluorescent shoes because yes. I'm an overalls oh and fluorescent shoes person. 
Um, the fluorescent shoes. And those are bright, but they're not right. <laughs> <laughs> that is a great line. And yeah, but yeah. And then actually the, 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 that, that dress that we refer to the Amish dress later on, uh, it does, it does, it is referred to, uh, in some later episodes. Oh. Um, but it is, I do feel like, yeah, Chris Krause does dress for Silver. Um, so it's interesting. Um, yeah. In that, in that episode that yeah. I'm so fond of, they show her yeah later on as a teenager with the same sort of shape of dress. So I just, I never thought about that before, but. Oh yeah. Okay. Well, I'm interested to come back to that. Yeah. Yeah. But I, I'm really, I'm really keen on the authenticity again mm. to the makeup and hair of what a real person might look like. And I'm so allergic to the Hollywood aesthetic of that perfect hair and perfect face that just people get from film and television. Mm-hmm. Um, it seems so weird and fake to me. Well, and that like people aren't told people by people. I mean, mostly women aren't told that your bare face like has a beauty to it, even if there are imperfections, right? Like, so, mm-hmm. I mean, I don't wear makeup, but that doesn't mean my face doesn't have imperfections or like there are like big dark circles under my eyes. Some days I just, uh, yeah, feel like I am okay with the world knowing that I'm tired. <laughs> The other thing I was thinking of along the lines of like body's wardrobe makeup is, well, I mean, her pajamas, which is a red t-shirt. There's a lot of interesting stuff going on with red and, uh, and just how she's like, she's not wearing a bra and she's just sort of like, it's just in this sort of schleppy kind of vibe. And I just really like that. Yeah. I love that. That's what I look like a lot of the time. Yes. Yeah. And she seems very comfortable in her, like, yeah, we did the lighter and she's like kind of aimlessly like drawing in, in her, around her crotch cause she's kind of bored. But it really, that seems so real of what someone when they're not being watched yeah. does. Yeah. <laughs> well, like she, she's kind of bored slash like frustrated angry yeah exactly <laughs> yeah. it's like so it's like yeah she's starting to use a lighter as a kind of like light masturbatory tool <laughs> while she's standing in the kitchen yes, exactly. <laughs> it's sorry i love that scene it's <laughs> get it together but i think so much of her relationship like her and silver have that where they're like bored and kind of frustrated and angry at each other and that's like in this cycle but it is it is it's very authentic and real the other scene that i found striking was um in the car a with the way that she eats food yeah in this haphazard sort of like I want it, I don't want it kind of way. Where it's like kind of all spilling down her front, which is very true to how I am. So that felt good. And then also the comment he makes about uh, he wants to go to Dollywood, but you're not allowed inside unless you have (laughs) have huge huge tits. Yeah. So she's going to have to wait in the car. (laughs) (laughs) Why is that so funny? It still was. Like, I remember it was a weird, I was like, this is such a weird moment. But it, yeah. I think what, yeah, for me, what saved it is the real, you can see the real relationship between the two of them. Yeah. It was a real moment that happened to be filled with a boob comment. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> like there's a history there yeah. behind that comment and, you know, other conversations they've had or, or you know, anxiety. And then her fake laughing she's... at that where she's like, oh. <laughs> yeah, yeah. but yeah, it was a really good interesting moment yeah and i'm so curious how much of the how much of the book is actually just letters and then how much of this is created now into the story of them (coughs) and i'm so fascinated just by the general 
hmm. uh, piece of how it, there really is a Chris Krause. There really is a Silver. Like these are like real folks too. So it's such an interesting, um, mm-hmm. it's not the traditional way that a story gets told mm-hmm. on film. Yeah. Maybe after we watch the series, we'll have to go and read the book. Well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's like reverse adaptation. I did also find that moment where it's at the reception drinks where Silver approaches that redheaded character. What's her? Do you remember her name? Toby. Toby. That's right. Yeah. They're just being something kind of very stylized about the way she was sitting and the way he approached her. Felt like in some ways the tables got turned a little bit. Like he sort of approached her with this sort of like... Oh, I'm so worldly, young lady. You need to go to Korea? Is that what he said? I think he said Korea. Oh, no, Japan. And then she said Bali. I wasn't quite sure what that was doing, but it felt like it was... I do feel like Toby is totally playing around with the with the the gate like the gaze with her work and how she presents in her little Mm. skirts and like the whole thing. But it's definitely her own creation of it. So, yeah, I feel like... I know what you mean because it you sort of set up that 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 it's going to be one way, and then I feel like Toby's character is always flipping it a mm-hmm. little bit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but just the, the image of her before you speak to her, she looks like the typical um, woman from a portrait, yeah. right? That that is invoking the male gaze. Yeah, um, and I think there's some part of her that must like know that. But then maybe, I don't know, well, I have to think about this more as we watch the series, but like maybe she enjoys subverting that, like that she wants to invite it and then disrupt it. That's yes, my hypothesis. That is my feeling also. <laughs> yeah. And um, yeah, I'm really fascinated by that character. And then there's a moment in another episode that we've we've just talked about too with uh, Silver and her again that's mm. really poignant. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we will talk, we about, will talk that about that interaction one. because I'm excited to talk about because Toby is a character who's interested in pornography yes. as well, which I find interesting. Yeah. Which is also the series getting meta about the male-female gaze, right? A woman who's interested in in something that is very much directed towards the male gaze. Yes, and I guess I'm interested in that too, because I mm-hmm. kind of personally fit into that in some ways. And... Um... Yeah, and as you know, I've been called a bad feminist and all kinds of other stuff. So you should read Roxanne Gay's Bad Feminist. Oh. I feel like that is a book you might enjoy. I will. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah, I feel like that's a good uh, first chapter of She's Gotta Have It! Mm-hmm. Exclamation mark. <laughs> exclamation mark. Let's, let's go let's with go the with exclamation mark. mark. Uh, we, do, we, had, we had thought we had a sign-off line. Let's, let's say it at the same time. All right. All right. Now, now that, that we've, we've said, said it, it we, we gotta, gotta get, get it. it. Until next time. Until next time. Farewell. Yeah.